Hey there, welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. This episode is very special because it's the first one. Yay! Okay, that'll never happen again. But anyway, I had a wonderful time speaking with Dr. Melissa Smarr about ways in which the environment can affect our reproductive system, both males and females, and how it is so important to constantly monitor our ever-changing environment. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning of your career. Okay. So you got your PhD in public health at the University of Michigan. What would you say was the biggest challenge in completing your PhD? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I had a mentor once tell me that the PhD stands for Perseverance, Hard Work, and Determination. <laughs> and I cute. was like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, like halfway through my first year in the program, I was like, Oh, so this is what they meant by that. Um, I think it's a couple of things. For me, I am a person who has broad interest. And I mean, I'm sure at some point we'll discuss my research and you'll start to see that it's a little bit broad with regards to the different outcomes that I look at or the different exposures. And so in a PhD program, if you're someone like that, I think you have to find a balance between Continuing to be curious and interested in all of these different possibilities, but realizing that you don't want to be a student forever and you (laughs) need to probably narrow down and focus. And so I think that gave me a lot of anxiety at first. How am I going to narrow this down? Environmental health is so broad. There's so many cool things we can study. I have so many big dreams about like being the next person that's going to help but the fight against air pollution. And then um, I was fortunate enough to know that things worked out just as they were supposed to. And so now you're an assistant professor here in the Rollins School of Public Health. So tell us more about the type of research that you do. Yes. So here at Rollins, I (laughs) am, again, stumbling through things, I guess, or upon (laughs) things, but in a really cool way. Uh, So I'll back up a little bit and say that from my dissertation, I did a quick pivot um, from putting all my focus on air pollution and realizing that there are so many other factors that are that we are exposed to, I guess, um, in our environment on a daily basis. And sometimes it's without even knowing it, you know. And my postdoc at NICHD, which is the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, it's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Uh, I was able to focus on exposure to these chemicals that are found in a lot of household uh, products that we use on a daily basis and how they have the ability to interact with our hormones and our endocrine system in our body. And so how do we look at these endocrine disrupting chemicals, so to speak, with regards to reproductive health? So I was like, okay, I'm just going to do birth studies because I'm used to pregnancy and birth. And I had a mentor there who challenged me who said, oh, that's the easy road out. Have you ever thought about what about women who can't conceive or women who are having um, experiencing with their partner a longer time to conception or they experience loss Or, you know, this various array of questions she posed to me and said, do you think that the chemicals may be playing an effect there even before you're seeing the outcome in the baby? And my mind was blown. (laughs) And so I've been fortunate since I've been here at Rollins to kind of bring some of that research with me. So I look at couples, reproductive health and saying, hey, let's not just keep um, investigating the woman as the unit, but it's a partnership. And female and male reproductive health together are what pretty much have influences on the fetal development and growth of that child. And so that's one thing that I look at. Um, then I also look at, you know, the male 
unit individually, like looking at sperm quality. So how do these chemicals that we come across maybe in our aftershave, in our mouthwash, in our, you know, skin tan lotion or whatever we're putting on, um, are do they play some kind of a role? We can't say always that it's causal, but is there some type of relationship between some, you know, of the things that we're using on a regular basis and how it's affecting our health? And then uh, Dana Barr, who is an amazing professor in Rollins, she knew that my interest was kind of more reproductive health, but she told me that she had this amazing study in Thailand that's looking at maternal exposure to pesticides and neurodevelopment in the children. So here I go again, stumbling into a new field (laughs) instead of like stepping away from just the reproductive, but trying to understand how childhood neurodevelopment could be affected even as early as in utero. And especially among a population where agricultural industry is big there. And oftentimes, you know, your choice is to just take the baby with you even after they're born. So do we look at what's the window? Is it the maternal in utero exposure that came from mom while she was working in the agricultural industry? Or is it maybe the childhood exposure that the child gets directly from being with mom in the fields or you know, in a home and the dust and the different types of pesticides we find in our home. And so I feel like my my work here has been a very wide range. (laughs) But but I think it still fits into the, the umbrella of the fact that the environment definitely has a role in human health across different time points of of our life and Mm -hmm. how do these pieces fit together for this overall puzzle which I still don't have the answer to (laughs) (laughs) and so I'm guessing these are more long-term studies yes yes so how do you how do you maintain the engagement from the participants Uh, good question (laughs) I bet it's hard it's very hard uh I can say that um for especially for the Thailand cohort and I'm also working a little bit with the Seachem Square cohort in the School of Nursing which is looking at you know environmental factors with regards to African-American women in Atlanta and preterm birth and Mm -hmm. trying to understand that relationship. And I will say that I am new to both of these studies, so I haven't done a lot with the community participation as much as I would like to, but I have future plans to. But the reason why I joined both of these groups is because I knew they already had a really good relationship with the communities that they were working in. Hmm. And having that relationship is just like one small but important step to keeping participants engaged. Because if they feel that the trust is there and this is not you're coming in collecting data from me and it's sayonara, thank you, goodbye. But this is a authentic relationship that we're developing where you're going to teach me something about, you know, some things that maybe I didn't quite fully understand about how my environment is impacting my health. Right. And I'm going to teach you something about lived experiences in these certain certain circumstances that sometimes just can't be avoided. And I think that I love it. That like intricate relationship is what keeps the study participants engaged because they feel like they're a part of it from the beginning. And it should be like that with all human studies. I feel like every study you do is not only for your own personal sake it's for the whole the whole world knowledge so in a way I hope patients feel like they are part of the study not only as a participant but also as helping the scientific community understand things that we don't currently understand so while I was doing um, some research on the field, I kept seeing the term epidemiological methods. <laughs> and I, I'm just curious, what what does this mean? What are the these methods? Ugh, that's a tough one. Um, I think epidemiological methods have changed over time and what that really encompasses now. I think for all epidemiological studies, we know that the importance lies heavily on the exposure assessment methods, which are 
essentially are a part of the epidemiological assessment because if you have, you know, less measurement error and you have more confidence in how you're assessing your outcome and your exposure, then your estimates that you're modeling and all these statistical models that we keep coming up with, I mean, the modeling world is definitely where it's at for all the biostatisticians. We love you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that having an idea of where we were and where we are. So, for example, when I think of epidemiological methods, because I'm an environmental epidemiologist, I don't always just think about, you know, statistical models that look at, you know, just confounding and associations and understanding how to tease apart a effect modifier or looking at a mediation analysis. I think more about, you know, what are the, how are we assessing exposure? So we started with just having indirect methods like questionnaires or time activity diaries and only having those and then quickly advancing into a world where now everything is a direct measurement, whether it be through biological samples like urine or blood, serum. I'm working with someone at Georgia Tech who's now figuring out a way to collect interstitial fluid. Wow. What? Like, this is where my mind gets blown all the time. It's like, what are we going to come up with next? I can't wait. Um, But then we're looking also at, like, how those measurements play a role in better helping us to understand these exposures that we're faced with with regards to health outcomes. And so to me, when I think of those methods, I think of it's a combination of all of it. It's a combination of how you're collecting the data. It's a combination of how you're cleaning and assessing the data and managing the but also how you're interpreting them. Are you using Hmm. the right models? You know, there was this huge shift. I remember when I was finishing up grad school and starting my postdoc with air pollution, there was this huge shift talking about single pollutant models and how we need to probably be moving away from it because if you think about what we're exposed to in the atmosphere, it's not one chemical or one pollutant at a time. Right. So how are we going to do these multi-pollute models? And I remember everyone going, what in the world (laughs) are you talking about? And fast forward to now, where it's not even with air pollution. Now we're looking at chemical mixtures and multiple contaminant uh, models. And the statisticians and the epidemiologists are getting together and coming up with ways to model multiple chemicals at one time. And understanding their relationship with each other as well as their relationship with the outcome. It's amazing. Amazing, yeah. (laughs) And so what would you say would be the next step? Like what is the next thing that needs to be either developed or discovered? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And it's a little challenging. I think to me, one thing I would say, and maybe, you know, I'm an old-fashioned gal. I don't know. So I, But to me, I see the same trend where it's perhaps – The methods themselves or the things that's important about epidemiological methods, so exposure assessment, statistical models, data collection, that stays the same. It's just how we go about it. Mm. And so to me now, I think we've already kind of proven that, like, we can kind of collect pretty much everything from everyone. But how do we do it in a way that, like you said, keeps the participants engaged? So coming up with ways to collect biospecimens that's not super intrusive of the participant that doesn't hurt a child and it's not uncomfortable for children so thinking of better biomarkers for children and easier ways to collect it people have wristbands now that they're using to assess exposure so crazy so now it's like well if we have all of this technology at our hands maybe we should be thinking about what's the next thing we should be trying to answer How do we Mm -hmm. take all of this that we have, all these cool biomarkers, all these cool statistical models, and think about some some questions that we've probably been grappling with for a while, but now that we have the technology, can we really 
get at it from a different angle. Yeah. And so to me, I think it's, you know, everyone talks about climate change. I know. Um, but when I think about it with regards to human health, it's like, well, there's this like cascading effect. And if you don't want to talk about climate change, per se, can we talk about the fact that there's a lot of natural disasters that have been happening? Extreme temperature events. We'll say it that way. And with these extreme temperature events, you still see health related effects like heat related illnesses or you're seeing places that usually have colder temperatures are now having warmer temperatures and vector borne illnesses are starting to increase because those organisms are staying alive longer. Like there's these unique nuances to maybe some previously thought of questions that we Mm. now should probably double back and start really digging in since we have the technology to really get at those answers, I think. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, so since we now have so much more information than we had 10 years ago, even, and so many different ways to analyze the data now, have there been studies that have either like disproven previous studies or mm. have shown opposite <laughs> results? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's interesting. Um, I think in a, in a way, yeah, I think the studies sometimes come out with these inconsistent results. And on one hand, you're like, oh, so what is our final conclusion? Right, yeah. But on the other hand, I think it challenges us to go back to the drawing board a little bit and think of it as, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't look at the inconsistent results as a there's no answer, but that there's a specific answer to the question that you were asking. And so, for example, if we were saying that BPA was not associated with a health outcome, but we measured it in serum, and then someone else said BPA measured in urine was associated with that health outcome, is it that we can't say that BPA is associated with it, or is it that we're not sure what we were measuring when we were using serum hmm. versus versus urine? Were we measuring short-term versus long-term? Were we measuring actual target dose versus just internal dose? So more specific, yeah. More specific. So I think the fact that we have these inconsistencies, especially with a lot of the uh, non-persistent chemicals, oh my goodness, some populations find this, some populations don't, then it gets back to what timing? What, when, right. when were you collecting these, these measures? How old was this population? And so I think the inconsistencies, it challenges us maybe sometimes from a regulatory standpoint to pull all the data together and say, here's our definitive answer. This is bad for this. But I don't think that that means that we're still not getting some type of answers. We Mm -hmm. just maybe need to think about the questions that we're asking so that we can interpret our answers appropriately. That's a really good point. So can you tell me a bit more about the exposome research paradigm. <laughs> oh, I should have known that was going to come up. I actually anticipated like the hardest thing for me to explain. It can be very brief. <laughs> so I'll explain it in my own understanding of it. Um, and I guess I would say shout out to Christopher uh, Weld who came up with this concept in 2005. And it's like what brain came up with this concept. <laughs> but I, to my understanding, the concept is that we are realizing now that our lives, our lives uh, span is filled with all these different exposures that we get at different timings, going back to the time. And do we have some way of understanding the totality of these exposures that we experience in utero up until? And what do they mean? How do we measure them? What does it mean for our health and our changing health status across time? And in the grand scheme of things, the exposome is an amazing thought process because it's like, that's reality. We are actually exposed at various times. And it's a constant changing exposure yeah. depending on where you move, where you live, what you're doing at that time. The question is, is has the technology caught up to be able to really get at lifespan exposures or a multitude of exposures um, at one time? 
I always sit in these workshops for Exposome related things and I'm like, I feel like we have some ways to go. That's just reality. But that's where the new generation comes in or other yeah, people gotta come in. You got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And I mean, I, but I think about some things that we're doing differently. Whereas before, when you did a question or you looked at exposure and health outcome, it was always a targeted analysis. So you knew that you were going in specifically to look at, you know, this particular analyte or this particular chemical and you were measuring their biological samples looking specifically for those signals using traditional mass spec or HPLC or whatever. The one thing I think that this exposome concept has done is challenge people to think about ways that we're measuring our chemicals that we're interested in in these biological fluids. So now we have this whole concept of untargeted analyses. And the untargeted analysis, and especially they do a great job at it at Hercules, which is our exposome center here at Emory, and they probably could explain it better too. <laughs> but they do a great job of saying, you know, here's this untargeted approach where you take the same body fluid that you probably would. So you have the serum sample or that you would use before when you were looking for a specific analyte. And now we're going to go in on a more exploratory approach and see all the signals that come up. And the good part about that is, is now we're not just looking at, you know, those exogenous chemicals and the metabolites of those exposures, but now we're looking at metabolites of endogenous things that, so proteins and things that you're supposed to have in the body and certain, like how they change, how they change. And you're looking at them all in like this one kind of method and, my mind still is kind of blown about the whole process <laughs> with the metabolomics and the transcriptomics and but I I'm getting that what I'm getting from it is that it's now time for us to take like the bird's eye view down to like the molecular Mm-hmm. microscopic view and try to understand what's going on inside and how how's our body reacting basically with these environmental exposures. And so I think that the exposome has definitely pushed our our exposure assessment to that. That's that's why we have metabolomics coming out of it. Epigenetics, you yeah. know, even though people were talking about probably epigenetics before the exposome, but that's another way of trying to understand this environment gene interaction and what's really happening when how we're expressing our genes are expressing certain, you know, is it because of we're getting up regulation because we're exposed to BPA or is it down regulating because we're exposed to phthalates? Do they work together or against each other? It's mind-blowing. I find it fascinating <laughs> that our environment and our culture can literally change our genes. Right. I think that's fascinating. It is. <laughs> but anyway, so I was reading that some people are opposed to the exposome research paradigm. There's some controversy to it. Yeah. I don't. I couldn't really find a reason why. <laughs> it's like, why would you not want to do great things for yeah, science? Yeah, why would you not want to know <laughs> what your environment is doing to your body? So I don't know about all of the controversy, but I can say that some of the... Um, the doubts that I've heard is that, like I mentioned, it's exploratory hmm. in some of the approaches. And they're worried, there are some concerns that when we're getting into how we're addressing this exposome type exposure, two things come up. Some people say, okay, the key part that Wild mentioned was that this is supposed to be exposures across a lifespan. How are you going to do that? Like, Unless you have this really large cohort study and you're going to measure them at every stage in their life, this is expensive, this is going to be costly, this is not feasible. We're only really just getting snapshots. Um, And then there are other people who say, you know, it's not necessarily about what you're trying to answer, but it's how you're going about it. Is there any hypothesis-driven question now? Mm -hmm. And is the exposome pushing out that really key part of the scientific method, which is you got to have a scientific question and a hypothesis, and then you do the the research to answer that question? I, 
I guess I'm not that traditional. I guess earlier I said I was a traditional old-fashioned gal. Because to me, I think it, there's a, it's a happy marriage of the two. And I feel like sometimes it's okay to be exploratory mm-hmm. because that drives the targeted research later in the direction that it needs to go in. Because if you didn't know that these were the things you were being exposed to or all these things were coming up in someone's, you know, bio samples, then how else would we know that we need to start looking at these interactions a little differently or that we shouldn't be looking at one chemical, but we should be doing chemical mixture models. So to me, I do get, I don't want to say old school epidemiologist, (laughs) but I do get the concern of if we're going to do this, let's make sure we still are able to have some hypothesis driven questions. Mm, Yeah. But at the same time, I think we we're early on in this process. So let's not count it out yet and let's just see what happens. And so many things in science have been accidentally discovered. Exactly. So does that mean that wasn't the right scientific method? Exactly. I think it's hard to say. And I, even for myself, like I'm thinking like, uh, I don't think that the work that I do is so exploratory that I don't have a scientific question. But I do think that knowing about this exposome type mentality has made me start thinking of maybe I can't answer this in one study, but maybe I can design multiple studies that will allow me to get at this. Or you start small with a birth cohort or pregnancy cohort and you start understanding those exposures and those health outcomes there and follow them up slowly but surely. Continue to write grants, Mm -hmm. continue to follow them up, continue to develop your questions as the population grows. And I think for the people who are leading the charge, they will have to double back and ask themselves, okay, am I getting too exploratory? Does this make sense? Is there Mm -hmm. still some biologic plausibility to this relationship here? What would you say has been either the most important study or the most important finding in the past decade that can tell us more about how our reproductive system has been changing over time? Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) Um, Off the top of my head, I guess, to me, I think it was a lot of the research that it's not really last 10 years. I think the first time it came out was like 50 years ago. But within the last 10 years or so, people have become more accepting of the finding that with regards to male semen quality, it's declining. Hmm. over time and it's continuing to decline as Um, in over time for an individual or over time over time for our population okay and so thinking about population trends and semen quality we're seeing these this decrease in semen quality and you know Nils Skakabak and others Nils Kiting others in uh, Europe were kind of the first to publish work on that and I think they were met at first with a lot of skepticism but now within the past decade I think about all the semen quality studies that I'm now starting to see and it's like uh uh-oh I think people have caught on to the fact that not only are we seeing these trends, but we're, there's good enough reason to believe that it's not all just genetics, that it could literally be some environmental factors, mm-hmm. especially when you think about the fact that you're seeing these this decline, I guess you would say, in sperm quality, especially if you're thinking about like count or volume or some of the individual parameters in both fertile and infertile men. So then what is the thing that's making the difference between those who are, are fertile and those who aren't? Where does the environment fit in there? Wow. It's like a reverse Handmaid's Tale. Right. Have you seen that show? I've been told about it and have not. You need to But it's like the women, right? Right. The women, for some reason, the environment has caused most women to become infertile. Okay. So the few that are fertile are owned by the government. I've heard about this. You should watch it. I was told I should watch it, too. You should. Yeah. So just to kind of wrap up things Mm -hmm. here, what would you say we should focus on for the next 10 years? Yeah. Um... 
that's a good question. And I feel like there's so many things that we should yeah, probably of course. address. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna take a I guess a step back here away from the maybe what people would consider a traditional environmental health scientist perspective. And I'm gonna put on my um behavioral and social scientist hat and say that I think for me a huge direction that we really need to be pushing is developing these authentic relationships between academic institutions and our communities that we surround. I totally agree. that we serve. And it's not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's such a social rights movement or something of that nature. And it's like, you know, environmental health is a social right too. Environmental health, environmental justice aligns closely with all type of human rights. It affects everyone. Everyone. And so to me, I think the direction would be, you know, how do we develop these meaningful relationships such that, We're no longer still just publishing papers that state the known, which are that, you know, certain race ethnicity groups are disproportionately burdened by chemical exposures. They're disproportionately known to have higher health uh, risk outcomes. Yes, we know that. And I'm not saying that's not important. These findings are definitely important. But... What now? So how do we help them? What's the next step? How do we get beyond that? How do we get to the day that we open up a journal and the tagline is that it was not the highest risk was found in black and brown women? Where do we how do we make those connections? I think the first step is for us to start thinking that it's not just something that belongs in like the behavior sciences department or the environmental, the policy people, but that even as environmental epidemiologists or reproductive epidemiologists or any type of epidemiologist or environmental health scientist, that we need to play our part and we need to figure out if the questions that we're asking are relevant to all populations, if the biomarkers we're setting are relevant to all populations, you know, if the preconceived notions that we come into these studies with sometimes are probably causing us not to get to the real root of what we need because we go in as suspecting that it's this and then we don't ask people who have these lived experiences to tell us what is it that you're noticing on a day-to-day basis what do you do on a day-to-day basis and then taking that environmental justice hat and thinking about how it won't just advance the field of environmental health scientists but thinking about how it would advance precision medicine How does all of this play a role in doctors being able to provide really good interventions or prevention treatment medicine for patients who are at risk genetically to be predisposed to cardiovascular outcomes or other outcomes? Mm -hmm. So I think to me, it's like if we can see the shift go that direction in the next, you know, decade or so. And I think we're starting to get there. I hope so. But I think you'd be surprised that there are still some people who question whose responsibility is, is is this a role for just this group of people versus this group? And if we start talking about it as we all have a responsibility, then I think that gets to the key factor, which is environmental health, which is improving the health and the quality of life for all people as a result of improving their environment. Yeah. Perfectly (laughs) said. Soapbox. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our talk. I think it's super important to keep recentering our environment and the effect it has on us because we do live in an ever-changing environment. And I'm I'm afraid that if we don't constantly pay attention to it, we yeah. might be too late in catching up to what it's how it's affecting us. Right. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Of course. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. 
Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.